Hi. Hi. Hello. Hello, you beautiful people. I just, that last song was pretty much my sermon, so I thought, like, I'm good. You're good. Off you go. No, I'm kidding. So um, it's amazing to me how God just orchestrates these things. It really is, um, honestly, just how the, everything that happened this morning and this morning. I keep saying morning this evening with worship and I know, I know, uh, worship right through the confession to just now. And, and, um, like I cried all my makeup off. So you're getting me raw and real people, (laughs) raw and real. So as, uh, uh, Brian mentioned, we are finishing up our short series. Um, and, uh, we started with Uh, Philemon, there was 2nd John, 3rd John, and today we're starting with Jude. And when Brian first came to me, and he's like, book of Jude, and the first thing that comes to me, the only thing that I knew about this book, the only thing that came to mind was Jude's doxology, which some of you might know. And Brian wanted me to do a Hey Jude Beatles reference, but like, I just don't have it. I don't have it. So so other than Hey Jude, which is my boy over there who's here today. So, um, so the only thing that came to my mind was Jude's doxology, which has always been, it's the last two verses, and it's always been one of those passages in my life. Whenever I hear it, I like want to jump out of my seat. I want to go full Pentecostal. It's to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you without fault before the presence of his glory with great joy. And I'm like, yes, I'll preach on that. And then Brian says, by the way, Tom Wolf, he's preaching on the doxology next week. Make sure you're all there. So I had to start right from the beginning. So I'm like, that's, that's not a problem. No problem. So that's okay. So um, as I read through this book a few times, I, w- I will tell you that I was drawn to the beginning. So we are going to camp in the beginning. Tom Wolf is going to speak about the end. And I'll give you a little bit of an overview of the middle. And I got to say that Jude is one of those books that's a little bit neglected because it's a tough one. It's not an easy book. Um, and there's a couple reasons for that, but um, we'll start where who wrote it. So obviously it was written by Jude um, or Judas and uh, the brother of James. And it's generally agreed upon that Jude, along with James, were the half brothers of Jesus. And this is referred to in Mark uh, chapter 6, verse 3. And this takes place when Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and he was in his hometown um, when this was said. And the verse says this, Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, which is Jude, and Simon? And the general consensus, scholars agree, that what happened is, is that Judas, which is a common name at the time, well, Jude kind of went by Jude, right? It shortened it to Jude because of course, there was an infamous Judas at the time, so they didn't want to be relating those two things. So he went by Jude. So that's who we're talking about here. It was written about the time of 65, between 65 and 80 AD, so pretty shortly between 30 and 50 years after the death of Jesus, and so like within Jude's lifetime. And it's not said, if you notice in the, in the New Testament, a lot of the books will have a, a, are written to the church of so-and-so, written to this person, written to that person. So when you're asking who did Jude write this to, it doesn't say. But the content uh, gives us the understanding that it was really geared for the Jewish believers at the time. And I'll explain why in a sec. So um, when I said it was a bit of a neglected book, I'm going to tell you why. So when I was reading through this book, I was honest to goodness, at first, scratching my head a lot because there's some confusing things in it. 
that I had no idea about. So for one thing, there's a conversation that takes place in verse 9, and you don't have to go there yet. There's a conversation between Michael the archangel and Satan about the body of Moses. And I said, did I like miss that Sunday school lesson? I, I have no idea what, what he's talking about. And then you go down a few more verses to verse 14, and it mentions something about the book of Enoch. And again, there's a, a, an interesting illustration that I just wasn't familiar with. So this book quotes, it's one of the unique features of Jude, it quotes two apocryphal books. If you don't know that word, you don't know what that means. Basically, it's books that were not included in the canon of Scripture, but the people at the time would have known what they were. So one of them is called the Testament of Moses. Another one is called the Book of Enoch. And you and I are like, well, I, I don't know what that is because it's not in our frame of reference, but the, the people who were getting this letter would have known. So it would have been similar to me using a, a theologian or someone that we were familiar with, like if I, if I quoted C.S. Lewis or if I quoted Spurgeon. It would have been names that we were familiar with. Those readers knew what Jew was talking about, even though I didn't know what Jew was talking about. So um, the other interesting part about this book is that there is a striking similarity between a few verses in Jude and 2 Peter chapter 2. And I'm just telling you this because they're, they're almost word for word, actually. And so the scholars have agreed that either Peter borrowed from Jude or Jude borrowed from Peter. So I won't say they agreed. There's been arguing, and they'll probably be arguing all the way until they get home to Jesus when he'll sort it out for them. Because to me, it doesn't really matter. The point is that their message was the same. So there was an intensity to the message that both of them wanted to speak and an issue that they wanted to address, which was about false teachers at the time. And we've mentioned this before. We're going to dig into it a little bit, um, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So the main purpose of this book, as I said, was to address the false, teacher, false teachers. And what was happening was that these teachers had crept in. And we'll talk about what that meant, because it wasn't an obvious thing, but it was a serious thing, and he wanted to nip it in the bud. So before we get started, I will say that um, where we're going to camp in Jude, he talks about identity. And so Jude knew that the message he was going to give the people was going to be a hard one, and he wanted to remind them about who they were. And so before we do that, I do have a question for you. And I'll get Liam to queue up, but don't, don't put my picture up yet, uh, Liam. Um, my question is, has anyone here had a brush with celebrity at all? You know, you know what I mean? Like, like, like you saw someone in an airport, you saw Jay's player in a restaurant. Has anyone, or your aunt's or your cousin's girlfriend's aunt babysat Bieber or something? You know, like, like, there's, like you've, you have a brush with celebrity. I'm seeing some heads nod that, yeah, that, that's happened. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a little bit about my brush with celebrity. So uh, some of you might know this about me, or maybe you don't. This is new information. But my brother was a little bit of a celebrity, so I'll put his picture up. So I, honestly, this is the picture. All of our pictures are goofy faces. This is the most normal one. So that's my, that's my little brother, Paul LaFrance. And about uh, 10 years ago, I think, um, he was on a bunch of HGTV shows. He did like... The, he was the outdoors guy, so he's his deck guy, right? So he did deck wars and disaster decks, and he did all this kind of fun stuff. And I will tell you that I totally would name drop that 
all the time. So I'm, in my job, I get, I'm brought into people's houses all the time. And, uh, you, know, you know, we're talking about their homes. And, and I would just somehow work it into the conversation, you know, like subtly just, oh, you know, my brother builds decks. Oh, you might know him. You know, it's Paula France. And the moment I did that, their eyes would widen. They'd be like, no way, your brother's Paula France. And I'd be like, Yahweh, it's Paula France. <laughs> and they would be like, it would be like I had instant, yeah. instant credibility. Instant. All of a sudden, their guards came down, and we could talk about whatever. They were open to all of my suggestions. It was like a beautiful thing. And I know my brother's going to watch this, and so don't let your head get too big. <laughs> don't let it happen. I'm here to humble you. So um, the, the point... And I'd like to, the point I want to make is that in some very small way, I could relate to Jude here, but the big, big difference is that my relationship with my brother made me extraordinarily proud, whereas Jude's relationship with his brother humbled him. So that's where we're going to start. So we're going to put up on the screen Jude. We're going to read verses 1 to 4. So if you're looking at an actual Bible, it is literally like, right before Revelation. It's a page, maybe a page and a half. Easy to miss. But we're going to read together, and we'll go read through one verse four. Thank you so much. Thank you. So here we go. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that the Lord has once for all entrusted to us, his people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality, and they deny Jesus Christ, our sovereign Lord. And so what we see here is that Jude's first intention, when he started like putting pen to paper, he was going to write them a gospel letter about their common salvation. It would have been a great letter. It was meant to encourage and teach them something. But obviously this issue was front and center and he changed. He was compelled to change the conversation. And he knew this was not going to be easy. Because these teachers had crept in. And what, what he talks about is that it wasn't like an obvious sin. They didn't walk into the church and say, oh, by the way... Jesus was not the son of God, and he didn't raise, rise from the dead. It was a subtle sin because they knew the word. They knew the gospel. They knew the word of God, but they were not living submitted to the word of God. It's really, really important. So these believers, these Jewish believers, were likely trusting these teachers, had a relationship with these teachers. And so this letter was going to come in hard for them, and it was going to hurt, and it was going to be messy, and relationships would be broken, and their faith would have been shaken by it. And they, Jude knew that they had to be reminded of their identity in order to face what was coming. And he started with himself. So we're going to start at Jude 1. Well, you, it's, you can put it back up on the screen, Liam. Jude 1 says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Simple introduction. Anyone notice what's not up there? brother of Jesus. That's right, Brian, you get a gold star. <laughs> so there is no mention, there's no mention that he was Jesus' brother, only that he was a servant of Jesus Christ. 
His brother James, who's also the author of the book of James, who was also the head of the Jerusalem council, who was known as James the Just. He was a big-time leader in the early church. Paul called him a pillar of the New Testament church, also introduced himself as James, a servant of Jesus Christ. Very, very interesting. And that servant word, we're going to put that up here, is from the Greek word doulos. It'll be here. There it is. And it means a person who is legally owned by someone else and whose entire livelihood and purpose was determined by their master. And it's the disregard of one's own interests to be devoted to another. And in Exodus, in the Old Testament law, it talks about this type of servant, or another in the New King James, it says bondservant. And he talks about what that is. And a bondservant, in, in ancient times, if you had accrued debt to someone and you couldn't pay it back, you were often enslaved to that person, and you would have to work off that debt. But there would come a time and a place when finally you've paid off that debt, and technically you would be free. If you chose to stay to serve your master because you were motivated by love, you would make a declaration and choose to serve them forever. That's the kind of servant that Jude was calling himself. And it occurred to me when I was studying this that Jude must have gone through an identity crisis before he became a bondservant of Jesus. I want you to think about this. Wasn't he among the family members who do not believe in him? So John 7, verse 5 says, For even his brothers did not believe in him. That would have included James and Jude. And Chuck Swindoll said this. He said, Like his older brother James, Jude did not place his faith in Jesus while the Lord was still alive. Only after the crucifixion and resurrection did the scales fall from Jude's eyes, and he became a follower of his half-brother Jesus. There is no evidence that Jude believed that Jesus was the Messiah until after the resurrection. And I want you to think about that for a minute. I want you to think about that. How would he have felt when the reality of who Jesus was sank in? How would he have felt to admit to yourself that you missed the mark in such a massive way, such a huge scale, that you failed your brother, you failed God, the moment that he realized the Messiah lived in his home, that he ate with him, that he played with him, he looked up to him, he might have been angry with him when all this controversy was going on. I'm sure he would have been on his face, broken and ashamed. And we have all, at some point, got it wrong. And I'm sure you could think of at least one instance in your life that you just wish you could erase. Something you've beaten yourself up about, something you've kept in a really dark corner of your heart because you just don't want to admit how wrong you were. Because it's really, really hard to admit when you're wrong. And I missed the mark with one of my family members um, not that long ago. And for me, it was something that I should have seen that I didn't. I missed what was happening right in front of me. And when I was confronted with it, I fell apart almost entirely. I second-guessed myself on such a deep level. I was filled with shame in that inner critic that is in our heads just screaming at me, almost deafening. You failed, you failed, you failed. Can anyone else relate to that? Maybe it wasn't at home where you failed. Maybe it was a business or it was a career move. Maybe it was a relationship or even a marriage. 
Many of us have failed, and it's moment like, moments like these where we have the capacity to be set off course. And like Jude, I had to go through my own identity realignment. I had to go back to the basics of who I was. And I'm speculating here, but I think that Jude probably had a pretty big shame hangover. That's what I like to call it. Where the, until the gospel truth got a hold of him. The gospel of grace lifted him up. He must have encountered Jesus. Now, we don't know. We don't know if he was part of the crowds that saw him that he appeared when Jesus came back from the dead and he appeared to people. We don't know if he was part of that crowd. We don't know if he was home comforting his grieving mother. He's just grieving himself that his brother was gone. But when the moment happened where he heard the news or he saw him, what a moment that would have been. Talk about a conversion. But in that moment, he knew that any credibility that would have come with being his brother meant nothing. He failed at the brother thing, right? It it wasn't about who he was. It was all about who Jesus was. So now he identified himself first and foremost as a bondservant to Jesus Christ. From here, he goes on to remind his readers of their identity. They needed to be reminded because they were going to face challenges. And the second part of verse 1, we can go back to verse 1, Liam. It says, To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. I am going to do it. I'm asking you guys to repeat after me, because if there is anything that I want you to take away today, I want you to take away these three words. So just, just bear with me. You are called, loved, and kept. Can you say that with me today? I am called, loved, and kept. Write that down. Put it in your phones. (laughs) This is what I want. Thank you. So called, we're going to look at each of these three things today. Called means to be summoned and invited and to be chosen by God for his purposes. We are not part of God's family by accident. You are not here today just because of a coincidence and your calendar opened up. Although I'm very thankful if it did. So I'm glad you're here. God has an eternal purpose for you. You were chosen. You were called by name. In Romans 8.28, we know this verse, and I'm saying it again, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Isaiah 43.1, my personal favorite, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Tim Keller illustrated the importance and significance of being called by God. May he rest in peace with Jesus. Have a great time up there. If I need a computer programmer, I find a qualified person and I call them. God, however, scanned the horizon of humanity and found no one qualified to be his child. So he does not first find qualified people and then call them to be his children. His call qualifies them. What does that mean and how does that affect our identity and how we see ourselves? Because in our world, qualifications matter. We rarely trust people without them. It's just the way our world works. So if we're going to hire someone, they better be qualified. That plumber better be qualified. If you actually just get onto a bus, you are trusting in their qualifications to get you where you need to go safely, right? You put your trust in the fact that they are qualified. And even if you're dating today, not dating, just saying, if you're dating and you're using the apps, you're like checking out potential candidates and you're checking out their qualifications. Love adventure and walks on the beach, right? 
So I'm, I'm stretching it there. I'm stretching it there. But it's a, it's a very hard concept for us humans in this part of the world to grasp that we are qualified just because we are chosen. Who does that? God does that. So when we grasp that there is nothing that we can do, there's nothing that we can earn, we can't achieve for, we can't strive for, to be more chosen than we are right in this moment, it is a mind-boggling, upside-down, topsy-turvy thing. But it changes how we see ourselves. Identity, realignment. 2 Timothy 1.9 says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He chose you before you were born. You were the object of his affection before you were in existence on this earth. He knew you. He chose you. And the most unbelievable thing, you didn't deserve it. It wasn't because of anything you did. It was just because he loves you. The next, uh, next part of this, it says that you are loved in God the Father. Or my favorite is beloved. There's a great quote by a famous person called Anonymous that said this. <laughs> it's a great quote. I just I have to use it. The love of God is an incredible gift bestowed upon us. It is not based on our performance or merit, but purely on his character. God's love for us is boundless, unchanging, and unconditional. And as we grasp the depth of his love, it fills us with a sense of security, significance, and acceptance. May we live each day knowing that we are deeply loved by our Heavenly Father. Don't we need to be reminded of this every day? If you want to see what it looks like to live an unloved life, you don't really have to look much further than Durham Youth Services. Some of you might be familiar with this organization. Uh, City Gates has been connected with uh, Durham Youth Services. And um, I'm saying it right, right? Joanne's Joanne's House. You guys might know that uh, name. So I actually ended up meeting um, the director of uh, that organization accidentally, or divinely is what I'd like to think, um, at a mutual friend's uh, birthday party. And we started talking, and I'm like, get out of town, You're, you work there. And, and uh, our, our passions aligned, and of course their goal is to keep kids off the street. So their goal is to keep them off the street and not even in shelters, they want to put them in permanent housing. And so... We, as a company, as a staging company, some of you guys might know that's what we do, um, we volunteer to help set up some of their homes. Um, like they get either a room in a house, they might get an apartment. The first um, project that we did was last spring. I was introduced to a young lady, couldn't have been more than in her late teens or early 20s. And um, she'd come from just the worst possible circumstances that you can think of just beyond your imagination and mine. It was really, really atrocious. Um, The nicest place she'd ever lived in was a garage. She didn't ever have a home of her own. She didn't have a a safety net. She didn't grow up in a loving environment. Uh, There was no one to really care for her. Um, When we arrived at the apartment the day that we were setting it up, her, she said, just, you know, do what you want with my stuff. Her, all of her stuff were in black garbage bags. Just, just, black garbage bags. She had a camp chair and black garbage bags. And, and we walked in and um, started to help make a home. Our, our purpose was we really wanted to make it a place that reflected her, that she felt safe in. We, we, we did something that was really easy for us. It wasn't hard for us to do this. We all have something that we can give somebody in need that's easy, that's part of our skill set. And so we went in and we set this place up and it was just 
small little one bedroom. We made it, we made it home for her. And, but I can remember looking at these garbage bags, and as, we, as I was rifling through them and helping her organize, I realized that when you're unloved, like the stuff in this bag was garbage to you and me. It was literally like she held on to everything. And she literally, like, she wouldn't want to let anything go because when you have nothing, you, you, you keep everything. And it's, and it's how she saw herself. Like this, it was literally garbage. Just broken packages and just, there was nothing. So when we finished, we, we intentionally did not want to be there when she came home. We wanted her to come back to her place and to experience what it would have been like to walk into a place that was her, to walk into a safe place that was all hers. And uh, the, the worker had texted us, and she said her first words out of her mouth was, I feel safe. And our hope was that that day would change the trajectory of her life. That was our hope. That's, that, that's something that's so simple as house decor, right? Like, in the grand scheme of things, what is that? But we were hoping that when she walked in and she touched her sofa and she touched you know, her chair and she, she saw these things and, and knew that they were hers and she thought to herself, why me? She would just realize it was just because. It was just because she was chosen. Because she was worth it. She had value. And I found out just recently, so that was in the spring, I found out just recently that a week after we did that for her, she enrolled in school. Love brings hope. I want you to note the wording in this verse because it says you're not just loved by God, you are loved in God. We all need to be reminded of that. We have our safe place in God the Father. We have a firm foundation in God the Father. He's the anchor that grounds us. We as believers have access to this all-encompassing, all-surrounding, everlasting love. And when we get our feet firmly planted in that truth, it changes how you live. Darren used to have a small sign on our kitchen. I can see it now, and it said, live loved and love. And when we know and accept his love, we can't help but be changed by it. It's an identity realignment. 1 John 3, 16 says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. If any one of you has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. We are called to live loved and love others. The last part of that verse says, kept for Jesus Christ. I love this bit, by the way. And when studying a passage of scripture, a great tool is to look for words that are repeated. And this word kept was repeated in this book. The Greek meaning means to attend to carefully, to take care of, to reserve. It means to stand guard over. Sometimes in order for us to get a full understanding of a word, you look at the opposite of what it means. And the opposite of what kept means is following. It means lost, wasted, neglected, abandoned, disregarded, not cared for, and cast aside. Has anyone ever felt like that at all? Anyone? Honestly, I know Jesus-loving, God-fearing believers who have been beaten down and discouraged 
who have felt completely lost and abandoned. I know firsthand how the enemy wants nothing more than to convince us that we are alone. You can take an active Christian, somebody with power, with calling, and if you can convince them they are alone, they become useless in the kingdom. And it's not that hard in our individualistic culture, right? I've heard this. I don't want to tell them about my problems. I don't want to bother them, right? I don't see anyone else struggling like I am. I must be the only one. And this thought cycle continues, and it spirals. And 100%, you end up feeling like there is no one standing guard over you. No one is protecting you. And we need an identity realignment. And I'm just going to do something, and I'm going to read Psalm 121 to you. I'm going to put it on the screen, but if you feel comfortable, I literally just want you to close your eyes, if you feel comfortable, and let me read this over you. And please listen to the word kept. And every time you see the word kept, I want you to think of guarded and protected and reserved for Jesus. Psalm 121 says this, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen to that. We are kept in Jesus Christ knowing that we are kept in Jesus Christ reminds us that we are not on our own to navigate this world. We are watched over, guarded, protected. And in the midst of all of our failures, we are kept. In the midst of life's storms, we are kept. And when we were in the valley and you can't see the light, you are kept. Now, I'm going to read verse 20 and 23 from Jude, because there's another interesting uh, twist on this verse. And it says this. This is verse 20 and 23 near the end. But you, dear friends... By building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. So it's really important to note the change in how, how that verse reads. Instead of it being God is keeping us, it says keep yourselves in God's love. Interesting. So there is a responsibility on our part here. How do we keep ourselves in God's love? Spurgeon wrote this. The best protection against surrounding evil will be the cultivation of a right state of heart and life, a continual growth in grace and in knowledge of the Lord. And I keep thinking the example that popped into my head is, is when you're parenting a toddler. So some of you have toddlers here, um, mine are, my toddlers are all grown up. Some of you have babysat toddlers, and some of you do not want to have anything to do with toddlers. So just bear with me here as we go through this. As a parent of a toddler, my job is to keep them from harm, right? You're just like constantly. When they're, when they're on the move, you are on the move with them. You are keeping them from harm. But their job is to listen to my voice, to learn from my words, and to obey. That's their job. So our job 
is to listen to his voice, spend time in his presence, spend time in prayer and reading the word, commit ourselves to growing in the knowledge of the Lord, and to learn from his words, building ourselves up in our most holy faith, accepting and walking in our identity, aligning it with the truth of his word, and then we obey. And when the reality of this message of Jude sinks in, that we are called, we are loved, and we are kept, we are empowered to live lives with purpose, confidence, and hope, we can't help but be motivated to want to share it with others. It's incredibly good news. We become the rescuers because we have been rescued. And if you feel, I'm coming to the end here, guys, and if, we, if you feel that the, the Spirit, like today the Spirit's been moving. <laughs> you felt that. At first I forgot, like I was lost. I forgot I was preaching for a second there. I was like, <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> right? He's moving here today. And if you feel that your heart is being stirred by the Spirit, perhaps you don't know Jesus. Like Vic said, perhaps you sense him calling you, or you may know Jesus, but the truth of your identity has been thrown off course, and you need to be reminded. I want to encourage you that we're going to take communion together, but I want to encourage you, we're here to pray for you. I'm going to pray over all of us, but come and talk to us. Don't be alone. Don't be left in the shadows. Just come. We're here. We want to minister to you. We want to pray with you. We want to make this truth of who we are a reality. Through his spirit, we can, we can encourage you. And for those of us who are going to take communion today, let this be the time when we get centered. Right? Let's get centered. Let's place our feet firmly on who we are and have our lives changed by it. So I'm going to pray over you guys, if that's okay. Father God, I pray that you would take these truths and make them real to us today. May we know right now that we are loved with an intensity that will never diminish and that it is based on your unchanging character. Thank you that we're chosen by you, that we are guarded and protected, and that right now you are watching over us. Give us the courage to share this truth with others. All of these things are more and more true because of Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Amen.